Good morning, everyone. If you could turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 110. As we're turning there, I want to reflect on an account, a New Testament account of Jesus, and you guys have probably heard this story, but it's I think it's pertinent for our time together today. I don't know what was going on in their minds, but the, the Pharisees and the scribes on this particular day, they, they thought today was the day. They said, this is the day we're going to go stump this rogue Nazarene teacher that's been stirring up the people. We, as the experts of the law, they said to themselves, we need to put this guy in his place. We don't like what he's been teaching. So, they gather the troops, and they go, they go find this Nazarene named Jesus, and they ask him some pretty tricky questions. And I mean, honestly, if I was put on the spot, I don't know how I would have answered. But we know how Christ answered, and he answered with his typical candor and uh, remarkable clarity, and in doing so revealed that these Old Testament experts, they themselves really missed the fundamental point of the Old Testament. Christ wanted to avail himself of this opportunity, so Jesus asked them a softball question. Whose son is the Christ, the Messiah? Now, any, any believing Jew would have been able to answer that question. Based on the, the promises God made to David in 2 Samuel 7, they knew that a son of David's would reign and rule on the throne forever, so they answered appropriately that Christ would be the son of David. Good, they got that right. Jesus followed up, though, with, how then does he call him Lord? And he quotes from Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This should have been a softball question. Psalm 110 was famous to the Jewish people for its clarity and proclamation of the messianic promises. It's one of those psalms that clearly can't be about David. A lot of psalms Messianic Psalms sound like they could be about David, but this one, it's clearly the Messiah. And yet, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that the people were unable to answer Jesus a single word. They were speechless. They were stumped. These experts of the Old Testament did not know how to answer, who is this Lord? Unless we disparage and judge the Pharisees too quickly— I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all kind of struggle to, to read the Psalms. You know, especially Psalm 110, it's only seven verses. But within these, these seven verses, uh, David, through the empowering of the Spirit, is looking upon heavenly oracles and realities that our minds, they can't even begin to fully grasp. And then on top of that, Psalms are meant to be sung. We should be praying the Psalms. That's a tradition that's much older than Christianity itself. And yet, how can we pray and sing something that we don't understand, especially when you have things like, He will fill the nations with corpses? What is, what is that about? How can I sing and pray the Psalms? Charles Spurgeon described the, the Psalter, the Psalms, as a treasury. The Psalms are like a bank account that we are meant to be able to withdraw grace from and experience in times of need. The Psalms are like a systematic theology put to song. These are promises and poetry. These are comforts in Hebraic common meter. Through them, we can behold the glory of Christ, but that's going to take a lot of help. So, my prayer is that this Lord's Day, as we come to Psalm 110, that we come as beggars 
and that we come seeking to withdraw the riches that God has in store for us, riches of grace that will captivate and renew us, and that through this we will behold the glory of Christ and experience His grace anew. I also pray that Psalm 110 will become for us a prayer and a song that will stay in our hearts and stay in our lips as we go forward here together. So towards that end, we're going to highlight three dimensions of this psalm. We're going to highlight how this psalm teaches us the commission of Christ, the conquest of Christ, and the comfort of Christ, the commission, conquest, and comfort. So with that in mind, let's do what I, I love to do, and let's read the Scriptures together. Psalm 110, which was penned by David, but given to us by the Spirit. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, be with us now as we approach your treasury of grace found in Psalm 110. I pray that just as you gave the Spirit to David so that he could see into these realities and convey them through words for us, that you will give us your Spirit so that we will begin to get a, a, just catch a glimpse of the glory you have for us. And I pray for myself that you will aid me, just as David was once young and ill-equipped. I feel young and ill-equipped to handle this text, but I know you are faithful. And so we all cling unto your promises and faithfulness to be with us. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. the commission of Christ. So, right in verse 1, we read, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, the English is a little confusing on on this front. It's the same English word, Lord, being used twice. Uh, And the ESV, which we read out of here, uh, is trying to use Lord with different capitalization to convey that it's two different English words. So, the first instance, Lord, it's all capitalized. This is indicating that this is Yahweh, the name Yahweh, the divine name, the covenant name, indicating the, the I am who I am, the great I am. And in the second instance, it's just the capital L, and this is indicating my Adonai. You could also translate it as my master. So we could read this as saying, the Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. Now, this is actually this is a divine promise. Uh, the Hebrew word for says is more like an oracle. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a promise of the, the Yahweh to the Adonai. Now, uh, it's also worth noting that this sit at my right hand, is, it's not a literal, temporal place. 
there was an ancient, I shouldn't say ancient, in the Reformation there was a heresy, the Socinian heresy, and they took everything that they saw about God in the Scriptures super literally. So if God had a throne, He had a throne. If it says right hand, He had one right hand. If it said He had wings, He also has wings. Uh, this is not what the, the text is doing. In fact, we know that's not what the text is doing because right then in verse 2, it says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. So where is He? Is He at the right hand? Is He out and about? No. And instead, sit at my right hand is uh, royal language saying that the Yahweh is investing authority and giving authority to the Adonai. The sending forth from Zion, uh, this would be a reference to Jerusalem, the city of David. Adonai's authority then is being dispensed into enemy-controlled territory from the epicenter, Zion. And in verse 3, we see that this authority of this Adonai's authority also comes with an army. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. In other words, the people will be a, as the Hebrew suggests, a free will offering unto the Adonai. They're not being conscripted into this army against their will. It's not a draft. This is, they've signed up for it, and they are eager to serve the Adonai. They are also, we notice, dressed in holy garments, priestly garments, uh, in beautiful garments. And we also have this, this strange, it's, it's strange in the English and it's strange in the Hebrew. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. What's that about? Uh, commentators go back and forth, but because it's poetry, it's probably coming on from a different perspective in multiple ways. Uh, this is talking about how the army is youthful, everlastingly youthful, you could say, in much the same way that in the morning you go outside and you look at your grass, there's dew droplets every morning. It's always there. That's why you can't mow your grass first thing in the morning. It just doesn't work, unless you got a really expensive lawnmower, which I would like to borrow sometime. Um, so this, this is an ever-renewing vitality, but it's also talking about the number of the army. Have you ever tried to count the dew droplets? You don't. <laughs> it's, there's so much, and especially if you look over fields and fields and fields, as David would have as a, as a shepherd, it's innumerable. You can't count the dew of the morning. So this army of the Adonai is immeasurable and everlastingly youthful, just as the dew of the morning. So that's the first commission of Christ that we see. It's the commission to be a king, but it doesn't stop there. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Once again, very similar to verse 1 when it was a divine promise, we see another promise. The Lord has sworn and this is an, a promise of eternal priesthood. The Yahweh is making the Adonai a priest forever, and this priesthood is unique. It is utterly unique. Nothing else in the Mosaic law is quite like it. The priests of Aaron, the high priest line, the, the Levitical priesthood, this is totally unique and nothing like that. This is a priesthood after Melchizedek. It's been a couple years, but perhaps you remember the account in Genesis where Abram has just gone forward into war. He just defeated these kings that had taken captive his nephew Lot. He's riding on the curtails of victory, and he, he account, uh, comes across this enigma of a character, Melchizedek. Now, his name, aside from being difficult to spell, translates into king of righteousness, and he's the king of Salem, which translates into king of peace. So you have this king of righteousness, this king of peace, but he's also called a, a priest of the Most High God. 
And then Abram, who you would think after this, this great victory would have wanted to receive something, instead he tithes onto this Melchizedekian figure. There's not much else in the Old Testament apart from Psalm 110 in Genesis uh, where it talks about Melchizedek. And this Adonai is being called a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, it is, we need to highlight something very important about the Old Testament. In the Mosaic law, you have priests and you have kings. A priest was a priest, a king was a king, and never the two shall mix. You do not mix them. A king was never a priest, a priest was never a king. In fact, we have accounts in the Old Testament when a king or uh, they would try to offer sacrifices and God would judge them for it. You were not to take up the priestly uh, role. And in fact, we have other instances like in the judges where priests kind of operated like de facto kings, and that was met with judgment. So you do not mix the king and the priest together. And yet here, this Adonai is a priest king. He's commissioned to be a priest king. And that's unfathomable because we also know he's supposed to be the son of David. He's part of this Mosaic economy. He's part of the Jewish law. How could this son of David, be a priest king. So, if we reflect back on the Pharisees, and we put ourselves in their shoes. How, if you were asked at this very moment, how would you answer that? If you were within earshot of this message, or if you're listening online, you need to know how to answer that question. With, with, without any reserve, we should be able to say that this priest king is none other than Jesus Christ. It is proper that we understand this commission of Christ as our priest king because it helps us to see the glory of what Christ did for us and who he is. This this office of priest king is utterly unique to Christ. No one else could fit that role. I'm reminded of David. He's ready to go fight Goliath, and Saul says, why don't you put on my armor? He's like, it doesn't fit, so he leaves it. This role of priest king can fit no one else, no mere human figure in the Old Testament. Only Christ, only Jesus can fit into this mantle of the priest king. But the glory of Christ in the psalm doesn't just end there. Actually, it gets incredibly more glorious when we realize the verbs in this psalm are are kind of confusing. Look again at Psalm uh, verse 1, right? The Lord says to my Lord, so this is the Yahweh speaking, He says, I will make your enemies your footstool. So it's the Yahweh speaking, it's the Yahweh who's going to do the conquering. But then you read in verses 5 and 6 that it's the Adonai who's going to shatter kings and execute judgment. So who is it? Is it the great I am, or is it the, the son of David, a man? Well, once again, we need to know how to answer this question without any reserve It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only person who can resolve that tension because He Himself is the God-man, the God-made flesh. This mantle, this priest-king role, no human figure of the Old Testament could ever resolve or take upon themselves, only Christ. And as we see this commission and begin to understand it properly, the glories of Christ just begin to multiply exponentially before our eyes. But this isn't just a commission where he, he's just, every king um, has something to do, right? He's not given this job to do nothing. This, this commission comes with a mission. And this mission is conquest. So that's what we turn to next. Uh, now, the, the, the judgment and the reconciliation of Christ, 
These are, this is what was meant by conquest. The conquest has a positive and a negative aspect. By negative, I don't mean bad, right? Don't think I mean bad as if like, oh, bad, Jesus Christ's conquest is a bad thing. It's a good thing. Um, but let's, let's start with the positive and we'll work our way to the negative. What is the positive aspect of the conquest? Uh, that would be reconciliation. So as we move forward into the psalm, knowing that it is, it is about Christ, that helps us to see how reconciliation is built into the psalm. Even if we go back to verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. If we had been only looking for a mere human figure, uh, uh, someone from the line of David, we would understand that just means Jerusalem. One of David's descendants would sit on the throne in Jerusalem, and he goes out and does war. But in Christ, there's so much more. In Christ, there's so much more. And this, is, this, is, this idea is what Christ is alluding to when he says that salvation is of the Jews. This, this verse right here, it, it's part and parcel of the theme of what happened as Christ enters Jerusalem, riding on the back of a donkey to the hailing of hallelujahs and the throwing down of palm branches. These people are seeing who they thought was the Messiah and was the Messiah come in, but they didn't like this kind of Messiah. They wanted a Messiah that would conquer, as they thought he should. He would conquer Rome. So, despite all of him riding in and all the, the glitz and glamour of that whole event, they put him to death. These very people turn on this king of the Jews and put him to death. Yet it is through that very death that Jesus suffered and his resurrection that inaugurates his kingship. Inaugurates is just a fancy word for starts. Christ is king over his creation. He took up that mantle of priest-king, which was his from all eternity, because of and through the cross. Jesus Christ advances his conquest through defeat. He brings life by dying, through, brings joy through suffering, freedom through bondage. And that, that tension explains Psalm 110 a little bit easier for Christians. We, don't, we aren't very comfortable with the military language in Psalm 110. We're familiar with the Jesus that said, put away the sword, Peter. Put away the sword, Right? But then we read all this judgment language, and it's this military language, and it's hard, but we, we understand that in Christ, this, this, this takes on a whole bigger meaning. David is using militaristic language here as a poetic device to capture the hope that we have in God, knowing that God will be victorious and will accomplish, accomplish all of His holy will. Seeing the conquest of Christ on this level of reconciliation also helps us understand Psalm 110, verse 3. Uh, I mentioned earlier this verse describes the youthfulness of the army and its immeasurable number. But did we ever stop to ask ourselves, where are these people coming from? It's a decent question. Uh, why do they have ever-renewing youth? That's not something you can get over the counter. Why are they dressed in holy garments? Where did those come from? And Biggest question might be, what is the day of Adonai's power? Well, starting with the last question, what is the day of Adonai's power? Jesus Christ most vividly manifested his power during the weakest moment of his, of his life at the cross. He gave up his spirit and died, but he had the power to pick it up again. He did not remain dead. The dew of Jesus' youth is his forever, and in him... It is only through Christ that we can participate in that life. These holy garments are given to us by Christ as well, because Christ took our sins, and He nailed it to the cross, buried it in the tomb, and it's left there. It is gone. 
in the righteousness that Christ have, has, He clothes us with so that we are priests like Christ. It is not something that belongs to me because of anything I have done. This life and righteousness that we have is all from Christ, and ours and is available to us if we believe in Him. So this conquest uh, is a beautiful thing, this, the conquest of reconciliation. It's Christ's removal of our sin and death and His gift of righteousness and life. And the beauty of it is that this all happened while we were enemies. Paul uses militaristic language. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. We died with Christ and have been raised with Him into new life. So this is the positive side of the conquest, reconciliation. What about the negative uh, aspect? That would be judgment. And judgment is not a bad thing. It just kind of depends on which side of that judgment you stand on. And in this case, the question is, do you stand judged by the priest king, or do you stand with the one who took your judgment? Do you stand as condemned by the priest king, or does the priest king take your condemnation? That's the key to understanding this side of the, uh, the conquest. In his role as king, Jesus goes about the work of conquering and judging his and our enemies, as we read in the Westminster Shorter Catechism just a few minutes ago. And we see this clearly in verses 5 and 6. The Lord, it says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Now, there's, there's an impor- important note of similarity here. We read about one army, this holy army with this ever-renewing youthfulness in life, and there, there's, there's a similarity between the, this army and the rebellious army, and it's that they're both voluntary. They're both voluntary. These rebels are voluntarily signed up to go against the Yahweh and His anointed Adonai. Therefore, their judgment and curse is perfectly just. The wages of sin is death. The curse of sin is death. And that's part and parcel of why we see such shocking imagery with this idea of piling on corpses. It's reminding us of the judgment of sin and death. But it's, it's not just a shocking image. It's also an artistic reminder of what we're saved from. We were, apart from Christ, dead in our sins and trespasses. We were enemies of God. The foul stench of death was on our breath. Our throats were an open grave. All that, apart from the grace of God, would mean that all of us here would just be a pile of corpses, a spiritual pile of corpses. Yet it is precisely when we were enemies that Christ came and saved us. He washed us of our impurities and gave us new life in Him. And Christ did this all by taking the judgment upon Himself. Christ took the judgment we deserved so that we wouldn't have to go through it. So in this way, you can see that the negative aspect of conquest, judgment, it's not a bad thing at all. It's a necessary thing. Again, you will either be judged by the priest king and found wanting, or you will stand with him because he took your judgment in your stead. I want to make a small point of application. Um, I, I was hesitant to even write it down because I don't want to be misunderstood, and it's a, it's a tricky topic, um, but I, I feel that the Psalm 110 warrants it, so I'm going to say it. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with people over the last you could say years, months, but I'm thinking weeks. And it's coming from people on all sides of the political divide, whether you're 
crazy far right or crazy far left or somewhere in between. It's from people both inside and outside the church. And I found that there's one thing everyone agrees on, which is a remarkable thing. (laughs) Everyone agrees on one thing that I found. The world seems like it's out of control. The world seems like it's, it's spiraling down. It seems crazy. What does Psalm 10 speak into that context? Well, this is a political statement, and I'm going to say it, and I'm willing to die about it. Christ is king. Christ is king. He is the one going forward in power to conquer his and our enemies to protect the church. He is the one doing the battles. He is going forward ahead of us. That's not a denial that the church will suffer. The church will suffer. Christ has told us that. This is why I have one more political statement to make. Christ is our priest. He has demonstrated in his flesh how we are to conduct ourselves in our warfare. If you are believers in Christ, you are part of that heavenly army. You have conscripted yourself voluntarily, and Christ, our head, our king, and our priest, tells us how to go about our war. And he did it in his flesh by dying and suffering so that through him, people may merit blessing in life. Therefore, our tools are not flashy, but they are effective. Preaching in prayer. God has promised his word will never return void, and he promises to hear our prayers. Therefore, pastors should address cultural concerns as the occasion arises, but the pulpit is not a place for political pundits. To make the pulpit a place uh, of a political commentary is to put ourselves above the wisdom of God, and I don't think any of us here are wiser than God. If God has promised to work through the foolishness of preaching, I think we should go that route. And the message that we proclaim is that Christ is our King, Christ is our priest. And if you have believed in that, be of good cheer, because Christ has overcome the world. I think that's a good transition to uh, the last dimension I want to look at you with is the comfort of Christ in this psalm. As the people of God, we are the new heavenly Zion. Christ is ruling in and through us now, even in the midst of a hostile world. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about how Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated is death. That means if you believe in Christ, he is already at work on your behalf in this world as your king. But we remember, he's not only our king, he's also our priest. And as our priest, we know he will never fall short. Jesus will accomplish his purposes. His intercessions on our behalf will never be faulty. His sacrifice was perfect and fully acceptable unto God. This redemption that we have in Christ is unfading, full of spiritual blessing. That is of great comfort to those with a weak conscience. For those of us with lives filled with shame or guilt or fear, we all struggle with it from time to time. But we know that our priest is at work for us, that he intercedes on our behalf before the Father, saying, I'll vouch for them. I have them. And then he speaks to us a better word, saying, I've paid for it. You don't need to feel shame. You don't need to feel the guilt. You don't need to feel the fear or the anger, because I am your priest king. I also want to look now at verse 7 with you. You've probably been waiting for me to get there. Verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. 
you have to kind of picture this in your mind, right? Here he is going out in conquest, surrounded by enemies on all sides, and our Savior Jesus Christ, we, we picture him stooping down by the brook, lapping up a drink, refreshing himself and lifting up his head. He's at total peace in the midst of his enemies. And he promises to give us that comfort, that peace in the midst of our crazy world. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He says to the woman at the well, I will give you living water so you will never thirst again. How does he make this available to us? Well, I want to look at one Hebrew word. And in your Bible, if you look at verse 6, you will see it says, he shatters chiefs. And there's probably in the ESV a little number four. And it will tell you that this in the Hebrew is a singular word. It's actually, it should be translated something like he will shatter the chief, or better yet, he will shatter the head over the wide earth. Part of the reason the ESV translates it as plural is that we we get the better idea of what's going on. He is in the, uh, Christ is in the mission of saving us from all of our enemies, but poetically, it misses what's being painted. This shattering of the head invites us to compare the enemy, this representative head, with Christ, who lifts up his head. In Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, God is in the middle of declaring judgment on the serpent, and he drops this huge promise he says that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And we see that fulfilled in Christ. In the singular greatest moment of injustice and evil ever in the world, that is fulfilled in Christ. It happens when Pilate has declared Christ innocent. He puts a sign up that proclaims, King of the Jews, and he, he turns to the people and says, Behold the man! And they all beheld him. They all beheld Christ as nails were being driven through his hands and heels, as he died on the cross, as his head fell and he gave up his spirit, as he was laid in the tomb. The world beheld him. And at that moment, the head of this earth, the prince of the power of the air, he accomplished his mission. He enacted his plot against the Lord and his anointed one, but Christ his head did not stay down. He lifted up his head again. He did not stay dead. In fact, it was through his death and resurrection that stomped the head of the serpent, that stomped the head of the devil, the great head of the prince of the power of the air that is at work in the sons of disobedience, at work to destroy us. His head was crushed with the cross of Jesus Christ, and at the cost of Christ's heel being bruised. This is of greatest comfort to us who believe. Even in the midst of our most difficult and trying times, we have this great high priest who says, I know what you're going through. I've suffered too. In fact, I've suffered in ways that you will never understand, but I did it all out of love for you, my people. Now come to me. I will give you rest. I will give you drink. And you too will one day lift up your head. That is the great comfort of Psalm 110. So as we wrap up here, We've, we've only caught the glimpse of the greatness of our King of glory and of the priest of our salvation. And perhaps you've sat through this and listened, and you have not yet surrendered yourself to Jesus. To those of you who that applies to, I want to issue a warning and a plea. And Jesus in Matthew 26 says, you will behold the Son of Man 
sitting at the right hand of God. And this is true for all of us. All people will behold the God-man, Jesus, ruling in power. The question is, will you be accounted among those with heads raised, dressed in holy garments, and with ever-renewing vitality of life, or will you be counted among the corpses, among those who lived in rebellion against Christ, among those who have no hope in this world? My warning is that apart from believing in Jesus and what He has done for us, there is no hope in this life or the next. And my plea is that if you have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, if you at all are feeling the Spirit working in your hearts, do not put this off. Do not delay. Hebrews says, today is the day of Christ's power. Today is the day that you can receive comfort, forgiveness, and life. And this is a gift made possible only by the sovereign grace of Christ Jesus. So the question isn't, will we behold the man? We all will behold him. But on which side of the judgment will you stand? Will you stand in the comfort of our priest king? Or will you stand against him? Let us pray. Father, by your Spirit, renew those hearts that are dead to you, so that they might live for you. May you guide us to comprehend greater the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus, and help us to withdraw from the treasury of your word and respond in praise and admiration for you. And we pray this all for the sake of Christ. Amen.